Welcome to All Geek to Me, the podcast where we translate geek for those who don't speak it. We are all time travelers, turning together into the future. Specifically, convolutional neural networks. Sorry, what? And with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. Mom, what's a Bitcoin? Sorry, I don't speak geek. The robots are coming. Brace yourselves for etymological excitement of a linguist nerd. So where are they coming from anyway? The word robot was introduced by the Czech writer Karl Čapek in his 1920 stage play R.U.R. for Rosam's Universal Robots. It tells the story of a company using synthetic organic matter to mass-produce roboti, artificial workers who lack nothing but a soul and do all the work that humans preferred not to. In Czech, the word robota means forced or hard labor or drudgery. Its Russian cousin, robota, simply means work, just work, normal. In earlier drafts of his play, Chopik named this creature's labore, after Latin for labor, but found that it sounded too bookish. At the suggestion of his brother Joseph, Chopik ultimately opted for roboti, or in English, robots. You'd think that thanks to the Slavic origins of this name, I wouldn't struggle as much with this pronunciation. But no, robots trip me up every time. Ironically, the word robot itself displaced older words commonly used for self-operating machines up until then, such as automaton. An amazing visionary thing about Chopik's creation is that his robots are not metal boxes with blinking lights. They're human-like and most closely resemble more recent conceptions of man-made life forms like the replicants in Blade Runner, the hosts in Westworld, the TV series, and the humanoid silence in the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. And so the robots are coming. There's another surprising Slavic connection to the earliest reference of the phrase, but we'll save that delightful rabbit hole for an episode on robotics. For now, let's talk about automation. Unless you're working as a host at a Westworld, the TV series themed park, you shouldn't worry about human-like perfection replacing you. What you should be worried about is much more discreet, subtle, and unassuming. Mostly software. By the way, for the purposes of this and many other episodes, we will use the words robots, machines, computers, software, witchcraft, artificial intelligence or AI, algorithms, machine learning, neural networks, and magic interchangeably. My views on technology and automation are manifold and fluid. On any given day, I travel across the spectrum from childlike anticipation, boisterous enthusiasm, to the sick feeling of impending doom. A friend of mine accurately captured this sentiment in a post saying, every time the Gmail predictive text gets better, I swing between awe and homeless guys shouting in the street paranoia. It's exactly that. I swing and fluctuate, but most of the time I gravitate towards anxious optimism. Anxious because the usual blend of optimism is almost as dangerous as automation denial. It's as if it removes any responsibility to push for oversight, regulation and legislation, something we're badly missing when implementing AI. So today I want to play devil's advocate, or robot's advocate if you wish. It's a thankless, unpopular role. It chased away many new acquaintances who didn't want to engage in conversations they found too bleak and grating. Apparently discussing dystopian future is not everyone's idea of small talk at a cocktail party. But I want to shake things up. I want to be a bit of a jerk and make you uncomfortable. And for this we will turn to some of the dangerous tropes and question them, but mostly question ourselves and check our own assumptions. 
let's take a look at a very typical article. You'll find hundreds of similar automation skeptics battling the same platitudes, and this article conveniently regroups the very best of greatest hits, and will serve us as a good example of what might be wrong with this reasoning. It's called 15 jobs that will never be replaced by machines. I don't actually think that the professions mentioned in the articles such as teachers, occupational therapists, lawyers, CEOs, sportsmen, politicians, and so on, are likely to be taken over by machines anytime soon. What I have beef with is the level of complacency-inducing arguments for why they won't. It goes something like this. Humans are great, machines are rubbish, nothing to worry about, go back to sleep. Only that's not our reality. But let's take a closer look. It starts off with the usual, machines are already better than humans at a lot of tasks, they have a lower margin for errors, they're cheaper, and they can work 24-7, but they could not replace all human jobs. End of quote. I agree, so far so good. Then the author gives a couple of reasons for why jobs cannot be fully automated. The first is the limitations of current technology, which, let's be honest, could be a temporary setback, even if it's hard and long to overcome. If a technology is rudimentary, if a machine learning model that might threaten your job is still at a stage where it produces loads of laughable mistakes and doesn't seem all that threatening, don't think that the researchers just go, oh well, that's that then, we tried, it's not working, let's close up shop. No, you can be certain that some of the most brilliant minds are working away to improve it. And if by limitations of current technology we mean that computers are not sentient, they don't need to be. Machine learning models excelling at narrow tasks is all it takes to displace a lot of workers. Back to the article. Another reason why jobs cannot be automated is that people apparently don't practically accept robots for some professions, trusting humans over machines. Look, we hand our safety, security and comfort over to machines all the time, without even giving it a second thought. Without giving it a first thought. If you get used to your services being faster, safer and more efficient and just delivered differently, would you even know? Perhaps I was scarred by abysmal customer service in the Soviet Union, but I'll take machines over humans for anything even remotely transactional. I make a beeline for self-checkout every chance I get and opt for online services to avoid phone calls. Pay attention also to the ease with which we let other people lose their jobs in exchange for a convenient service. But to be fair, the author of the article had other jobs in mind. And those are jobs that intrinsically require the person to be, in capital letters, a real human. It's not enough for a machine to replicate all the five senses of a human being, have the same or better cognitive and mental abilities, and appear exactly human. Any job that requires the human brain and heart will never be replaced. Humans are a part of nature. Artificial intelligence is something unnatural by definition. So AI can never replace a real human. However, robots can replace everything which has a repetition of tasks because they can be programmed to do so. When it comes to humans, they have the power of thinking that can never be programmed into a machine." End of quote. Ugh, lots of problematic things with those statements, but I'm only focusing on the commonly mentioned stronghold of humanity our incredible power of thinking. Now, let's not overestimate our cognitive power. In evolutionary terms, logic and reasoning are fairly recent add-ons to natural human intelligence. Knowledge and skills we spend years picking up in schools and universities can be acquired by machines. What is really hard for machines to replicate is the opposite. It's everything we do without thinking. 
or really silly things like coming to your friend's place for the first time and fixing yourself a cup of tea in their kitchen. I'm remarkably good at that. Sadly, no one is queuing to pay me for having hot beverages in unfamiliar settings or for exhibiting common sense. So what is an example of a job that according to the article requires a real human? It says here, HR recruiter, with the following justification. Computers can basically help to match job candidates with a certain job, interpret how candidates may work and make decisions. But in some cases, an applicant may look great on paper and still not work out, end of quote. Yes, only the issue with the existing recruitment algorithms is that we're not asking them to find the best candidates. Instead, we're asking them to identify candidates that most resemble the ones human recruiters selected in the past. So the argument about the need to be a real human doesn't hold up. Machines are basically expected to think and feel like real humans, which ends up in them holding a mirror to our own biases. I agree, we don't need machines for that. We're perfectly capable of picking the wrong candidates all on our own. I'm not even getting into cronyism and nepotism. But yes, I can see how we're not ready to hand over that kind of decision-making power to machines. Nor should we, unless their use is clearly understood and regulated. Another human stronghold cited by the article is creativity, which brings us to such quintessentially creative professions as writers and musicians. So, writer. Writing is art. Putting thoughts into words is an extremely difficult task. Writers have to create and produce original content out of other people's ideas or their own imagination. Robots can't mimic the talent, creativity and imagination of a good writer. End of quote. After the last episode, where I talked about working for a publishing house in my teens, a couple of people asked me how come they trusted a teenager with translating books. Maybe because those books were written by one of the best-selling English novelists, who throughout her life churned out over 700 romantic novels. They usually featured a viscount stealing a furtive glance, a baroness feeling a sudden flame shoot through her body, lips responding to each other. Three books in, I could no longer tell them apart. At some point, even the author gives up halfway through the book and starts referring to one of the earls by a different name. Looking through them now, if I didn't know any better, I would have guessed that it was an automated text generator. Something like the generative pre-trained transformer, or GPT, created by OpenAI, a research lab funded by Elon Musk. In its most recent iteration, GPT-3 might still struggle to remember what it wrote a few sentences back, but it is infinitely more fun and versatile than certain best-selling novelists. AI is already used to weave a narrative out of structured data. It looks at a spreadsheet and authors business and sports articles. It won't recognize an opportunity to make a pun, but if anything, maybe that's a good thing. It can help with text summarization, writing prompts or headline suggestions, spot checking for clarity, scanning for plagiarism and generating social media messages. So here's a thought for you. Who is to say what kind of written content we will consume? What if automated social media messages become the only content future kids will have attention for? When was the last time you read a book for longer than an hour without pausing to check your social media feed? Now I'm really being a jerk because I know for a fact that my listeners do read a lot and great writers won't disappear. And yes, writing is art and it takes a spark. It takes pure genius to be Charles Dickens, Vladimir Nabokov or Oscar Wilde. I'm not worried for those guys. 
Whenever creativity is mentioned as the super reason for why humans will never be replaced, it does very little to reassure me. For one, my own profession is all about creativity and thinking. It's like thinking and creativity had a baby and called it translation. So how come I don't feel more immune to automation? And what if we're overestimating our collective and individual creativity and talent? Outside of my profession, I don't think of myself as an amazingly creative or artistic person. I'm an okay drafter, but a very mediocre writer at best. I'm a forgettable singer and an uninspired artist. And to the extent to which creativity can arguably permeate all of our activities, I'm also a rusty mathematician, an uninventive mom, and a pretty average driver. Strictly creative artistic professions account for 3% of today's workforce, at most. So if tomorrow's economy demands creativity, how are the remaining 97% of us supposed to self-actualize as those incredible creative geniuses overnight? And we can't exactly deny artificial intelligence's creativity. There are already numerous examples of it making original connections and cross-connections and finding ingenious, resourceful solutions that stagger my puny human brain. If we talk about artistic expression, isn't art itself essentially derivative? Pablo Picasso is often quoted as saying, good artists copy, great ones steal. And machines are nothing if not amazing copycats and thieves. And what is our ultimate test of artistic talent? We often judge works of art by how they affect our emotions. The author of the article also makes the argument about human creativity and emotions. He actually says, quote, Singing comes from the emotions singers portray. Robots have no emotions. If they sing, it will be monotonous and not pleasing to the ear, unquote. I find this adorable. I have no idea who those literal monotonous robots are. Again, an algorithm won't need to take the shape of a sad physical robot to produce the next summer hit. And voice synthesis is getting better by the day, but hey, what do I know? Advances in artificially generated music are a scary reminder that we're not magical pinnacles of creation endowed with mysterious emotions. In fact, we're pretty basic algorithms ourselves. Sensory input pushes on our sentimental buttons. AI is particularly well suited to anything mathematical. If there's math in it, chances are you can develop an algorithm for it. Music is mathematical, and composers like Bach, for example, often made music that followed a defined step-like flow that is almost algorithmic. So when a deep-back model was trained on real box compositions and learned to imitate them, it fooled listeners half of the time. 1,600 people, a fourth of whom were professional musicians or music students, were asked to take part in an experiment and tell the real bug from the fake. More than half of listeners attributed computer-generated harmonies to Bug himself. The creators of the model were rightly chuffed with those results given the complexity of the original compositions. There are many other examples of when human listeners chose machine-generated music over music composed by professionals. They were sure in their choice too because they said that music touched and moved them and stirred emotions. By way of little confession, the theme music for this podcast was computer-generated. The title a computer chose for it was Me and My Confusion. It felt weirdly appropriate and saved me copyright headache. But on we go. Another stronghold invariably mentioned alongside thinking and creativity is empathy. Let's see what our article has to say about professions relying on empathy and human connection. 
psychologists and psychiatrists. Because a robot has never been a human, how can it understand our emotions? End of quote. Well, look, I have been a human and I sometimes struggle to understand my emotions or those of fellow humans. But again, I suspect that the workings behind them might not be as complex as we like to believe. Yet the author of the article insists, robots cannot help people with their mental problems. So it's quite impossible to have a robot psychiatrist or psychologist. Is it though? Is it impossible? I can imagine having easier time opening up to someone who I know wouldn't judge me. Besides, AI is already used to classify suicidal patients, and it does so with an impressive 93% accuracy by analyzing verbal and nonverbal cues and correctly diagnoses depressive behavior based on speech patterns of the patients. Speech patterns. So it's looking out for more monotone and flatter speech with a reduced bowel space. I mean, my shrink was lovely and extremely empathetic, but she missed textbook symptoms of depression and PTSD as I was describing just how unwell I was. Forget speech patterns. And in my case, a timely diagnosis would have been an acceptable substitute for empathy. Next on the list, medical professionals. This is a tricky one for me. I cannot be flippant and facetious about this profession, even to make a point. I have enormous respect for medical workers. Both my grandparents were doctors. My grandma was a diagnostician, a doctor house essentially. My grandfather was a surgeon, a badass war surgeon. They saved a lot of lives. They made mistakes, mistakes that cost lives. My grandfather, whom I never met because he had a hard, stressful life and died quite early, used to say that he had filled an entire cemetery with people he didn't save. My grandparents were amazing professionals and kind, warm, generous people. They didn't always have the time to be empathetic and hold their patients' hands. And that's okay. In a later episode, we'll take a look at how machines are used to help diagnosticians and surgeons. And I often wonder what my grandparents would have made of those automated assistants. This still leaves the question of empathy and human connection, though. We turn to medical professionals and, by definition, we're at our most vulnerable. When we're unwell, in pain and scared, we need someone to make it better. But is it so preposterous to imagine that this someone could interact with us via digital interface? During a recent stint at a particular bad emergency room, I was wondering if I would say no to a little robotic companion that would cater to my every need, explain what was going on and have some, I don't know, haptics and hands massage feature. And while the idea of a robot caregiver may sound outlandish or even insulting to some, they are already used in healthcare facilities. One example is Paro, a robotic baby harp seal created by the Japanese Institute of Industrial Science and Technology. It looks like a stuffed toy, has a comforting weight of a newborn baby, and is soft and pleasant to the touch. Paro is used in hospitals and care facilities in several countries to keep company to dementia patients who often suffer from anxiety. Paro interacts with patients, stimulates them, and boosts their motivation. The use of those little robots has proven to be as efficient at reducing stress and anxiety as animal-assisted therapy. And live pets are messy, unpredictable, and tricky to keep around in medical facilities. Unlike humans, Paro doesn't get tired or impatient. But far from replacing human contact, Paro actually helps patients with socialization and serves as a helpful prop to enhance their interaction with human caregivers. 
Does its use raise certain ethical concerns? Yes. Is it proving to be beneficial to elderly patients with dementia? Also yes. Automation skeptics insist that humans are wired for social connection, something that robots could never provide. We are indeed hardwired to connect, so much so that I would argue that this feature of our brains can be hacked. I shocked myself when I first met Pepper, a French-Japanese semi-humanoid robot. Pepper is stuffed with motion and tactile sensors, facial recognition, speech recognition and synthesis, basic emotion detection, and lots of other gimmicky features. I knew all that going in. I knew perfectly well that it's not alive or sentient or even intelligent. And yet I found myself kneeling down and cooing over a piece of white plastic as I would with a dog. Pepper has big round eyes. It's about the height of a young child. There's something disarmingly adorable and vulnerable about the way it moves. And my brain circuits shorted and I wanted to connect and interact with it to pet and protect it. And what's even scarier, I wanted Pepper to engage with me and to like me back, knowing all along that it's not capable of doing so. My empathy will be my undoing. I'm already literally bowing down to our robot overlords and looking for a cuddle. So what if the barriers we think we have against automation, like our superior intelligence, intuition, empathy, creativity, dexterity, what if they crumble faster than we think? Many of those who have accepted that automation is well upon us, or who are in fact driving it, have another reassuring joker up their sleeve. This brings us to the last cute argument I want to take a look at today. Human in the loop. This term is used in machine learning to describe a process when a computer system cannot solve a problem on its own and relies on a human to intervene, which creates a feedback loop. I bet you you cannot get through a single conference or workshop that deals with artificial intelligence and automation without at least one speaker bringing up the human in the loop trope. Machines are very advanced, they'd say, and might soon be able to carry out most of the tasks we do, but we'll always, always need a human in the loop. And everyone walks away from those events excited and inspired because an important sounding dude on stage said that we'd always need a human in the loop. All right. Real talk. We are 7.9 billion humans on Earth. Or as an alien character in my daughter's favorite cartoon says, Humans on Earth. 7.9 billion and counting. About a quarter of global population are below the working age, defined as 15 to 64 years. Let's say another 10% are above it. So we're looking at a share of active population of roughly 65% or 5 billion people. Not everyone in that bracket is employed or self-employed. So we go down to let's say 3.5 billion. You'll find very different forecasts of how many workers will realistically get displaced by automation with some of the most modest estimates starting at one in every five jobs within the next decade. So 20% of 3.5 billion is 700 million. That's still enormous. How many loops do we have to go around? And even those who do believe that robots are coming still think themselves untouchable. Here's an indicative quote from The Guardian. Two thirds of Americans believe robots will soon perform most of the work done by humans, but 80% also believe their jobs will be unaffected. This does not compute. Even when we're lucid enough to see that something is brewing, 
Why do we have such a hard time accepting that we might not be invincible? So please don't assume that you are and take a hard look at what's going on in your industry and at workplace. Do you think your employer has the will to retrain and repurpose their staff? While retaining and retraining are admirable and already not a given, there's another issue here. Not hiring new staff is also a form of unemployment. Do a little research on how susceptible your profession is to automation. Are you getting better at what you do every 18 months? Does your work require unique or versatile skills? How much of it can be broken down into repetitive steps and involves tasks that can be easily outsourced? For a laugh, go on willrobotstakemyjob.com. It shows a list of 700 occupations and the likelihood of them being computerized. It's based on a 2013 academic report, so it's quite old and misleading. But even that could be pretty sobering. Take a look also at how advanced the technology poised to disrupt your field really is. Then trace a few steps ahead into the future and question your assumptions at every turn. For example, the first scientific paper on using neural networks and machine translation was published in 2014. The academic research then traveled over to the big tech that through loss of computational power, data and resources added to have commercial models ready within a couple of years. While the advances of the past few years have been impressive and disconcerting even, the machine translation technology will likely plateau and never make it past the last mile to reach 100% accuracy. Interpreters might feel safer as they are buffered from automation by the need for three concatenating technologies to get better. For a computer to replace them, it must be able to detect sounds as constituting words. Those words must then be translated and finally a synthetic voice has to read them out in real time. So speech recognition, machine translation and speech synthesis. The error rates of every link in this chain are additive. Any mistake made in recognizing speech will lead to a distortion in the translation, which will then have an effect on the prosody of the synthetic voice. The total error rate will therefore always be higher than for the use of any single one of those technologies separately. But life interpretation is not expected to be 100% accurate. And what if even with a compounded error rate, the advances in all three fields will allow to produce something good enough? And if we're routinely given a choice between zero human interpretation or translation and something good enough, how quickly will we lower our standards and expectations as consumers? Those are uncomfortable questions that no one likes to ask or hear. And I know I'm taking cheap shots, making tons of shortcuts and pushing on some really sensitive buttons. But before we can start looking for a solution in earnest, I need you first to recognize and accept that there might be a problem. And since the homework I'm asking you to do is so grim and depressing, I want to leave you with a couple of lighter questions. Do you know who you want to be when you grow up? If notions of failure and success were removed, if you didn't have to worry about paying your bills and making a living, what would you do with your time? If you were spared the drudgery, what higher value tasks would you focus on? Which passion, hobby or side hustle would you rather pursue? What subject or cause are you fanatical about? Basically, what gets your geek on? And to help us answer those and other questions and look at the positive side of the automation coin, next time we'll be joined by one of the most intelligent, creative, funny, warm and kind human beings I know. And I know him 
because for the past year I've been trying and failing to automate some parts of his work. Thank you for listening. May the fourth be with you. You can follow our Twitter at AllGeekToMe. We will post pictures, videos and links to articles we mention and to other content that didn't make it onto the podcast. Thank you and speak to you soon.